You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Everybody, you are watching or listening to Wake Up Call the Podcast. I'm your host, Christina Previtt, and joining me today for another edition of the Hashtag FemSquire series is attorney Christina McKinnon, who has a family and divorce as well as a personal injury practice in Miramar, Florida. Thank you for joining me today, Christina. Thank you for having me, Christina. I, yeah. um, <laughs> I, I, I am very, very thrilled to um, have this opportunity to speak with you. You always seem like you're the person that's in the know um, and are relevant for today's times. And, you know, it doesn't seem like the pandemic has affected you at all. You know, you're always so bubbly and it looks like you are succeeding very well over this past uh, year or so. Well, thank you. I'm I'm resisting the urge to say I must be faking it very well because something a lot of people don't do is take a compliment well. So I'm just going to say thank you so much, Christina. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> and thank and you for having me. <laughs> of course. Thank you for saying yes. And I'm excited to spend the next 90 minutes with you and try to get up all up in your business. <laughs> Literally, your business. That's what we're here to talk about. So, okay. yes. So I do start out every interview, as you know, with the question, where did you go to college and what did you think that you were going to be when you grow up? Well, I um, am a Florida girl and um, I went, I mean, Florida is a very long state. So it was, I mean, for the typical person, it would be like out of state, but we were still in the state of Florida. I'm at the Southern tip down in Miami um, area. And I went to Tallahassee, which is Northern, like Northwest Florida, almost like Southern Alabama. So that was an eight hour drive, um, either way you slice it. So yeah, um, I stayed in Florida, went to the Florida State University. And I know it's characterized as the number one party school in America, but I did not do any of that, I promise. Right? Right. Yes. I didn't do that right now. Of course <laughs> <Okay>. not. <laughs> not you. But what I wanted to do when I was a little girl at the tender age of seven, I think I made my mind up that I was going to be a lawyer. Um, you know, I was just that kid. I was that kid that was um, super studious and certainly curious. I think all kids are gifted anyway. Um, it's just a matter of where they're directed. And I made my mind up and every decision after that was in furtherance of that goal. So why did you want to be a lawyer? Why was that the thing? Um, Especially at seven. I know, right? So, you know, we grew up, um, you know, rather spiritual background in church. And my mom always had us uh, reciting, you know, whether verses of the Bible or poems or whatnot. And I was, you know, pretty much an orator. So I thought that was a natural a natural profession for me. Um, certainly, yes, it was a, a childhood dream. Didn't really know what it in, entailed, but, you know, certainly got, got me into debate later on when I got to middle school and, and the rest is history. Did you envision what kind of lawyer you were going to be when you were little? No, not, not at all. But as I got older, maybe high school and college, um, I always thought it was going to be per public service. So I was going to be somewhere in the public interest doing, you know, something for uh, the less fortunate. And probably through the last year of law school, I still maintained that intention. So then where did you go to law school? 
I did my first year of law school uh, in Michigan and transferred after my first year because I could not weather the <laughs> the winters there back to South Florida. Finished up at a law school here called Nova Southeastern University it's in Davie, Florida. So it's just west of Fort Lauderdale. So yes, sun and fun is my uh, educational path. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you were going to try to ease into cold weather, probably going to Michigan wouldn't have been a, uh, the, the first place to go because <laughs> it's really cold there. Well, you know, hey, I, I don't know. Maybe it was just uh, a desire to get out of Florida at that point. So as far away as possible um, so that, you know, I'm a very independent person. I at that age, I had no fear. Um, now, uh, getting around the corner from 46, I, I think I'm like, oh, my God, how did I do those things? You know, I, I went there all alone, didn't know anybody, um, you know, packed my my car uh, and a U-Haul attached right after the summer after uh uh, undergrad and drove all the way there. It's a 24 hour drive, drove 12 hours to Atlanta, stayed with a friend and another 12 hours into Michigan. And that's how I got there. So all alone at 22. <laughs> yeah. I'm just imagining you up there dealing with that Michigan cold. Cause I'm from Jersey and I can't even stand the cold here. This is something you and I have talked about a bunch of times. And I really was, I think I was supposed to be born in Florida, not New Jersey. So I can absolutely relate to why you left Michigan. Yeah, it was, I mean, there were nice people. I think, you know, wherever you go, the people are the same, you know, same stories, just, you know, different cast, as they say. That was, that was one of the things I had to stop driving all together <laughs> and, you know, take the bus wherever I was going. And I was in blizzard conditions wrapped up. All you could see is my eyes. And, you know, I was like, this is not going to work. I've fallen yeah. my, my butt way too many times. <laughs> that is not for me either. So then, so you transferred and what were you thinking at that point was you wanted to do in terms of your legal career? Did you have any, did you still want to do public interest? Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, uh, up until the last year, my, my third year of law school, did I um, make the change to do family law litigation? So, but yes, I, I always thought that I would be a public interest lawyer at some point, um, just helping the less fortunate. Well, you kind of are to some degree. You're still doing something good. Yeah. I mean, we represent very good people going through sometimes horrific circumstances, but, you know, we're very well paid. It's not, yes. a, it's not a public interest in the sense that, you know, we are, um, you know, working for the same type of salary that a public interest lawyer would be doing. But yeah, a lot of the work that we do, you know, abused, neglected, abandoned kids, um, sometimes there are domestic violence issues. However, you know, we're very well paid for that. Yes, yes, we are. I'm sure most people in the country who have been through a divorce would say mm -hmm. that we are. What kind of jobs did you apply for and what you end up doing? Well, my first job was um, actually in labor and employment. You know, so and, and and that was purely a job for, you know, income purposes. You know, I'd never made that much money before in my life. You know, we were responsible for the collective bargaining agreements at a major hospital system uh, for the attending physicians, resident interns and nurse practitioners. And, you know, a lot of negotiation, um, some arbitration or assisting the county attorney's office. It was a public hospital uh, with the arbitrations. But, you know, I wanted to be in the courtroom and quickly within a year and a half started my own firm. 
I know. I'm always impressed by that because when I was starting out, I, my a friend of mine used to tease me and say, Christina, you want to find Mr. Miyagi, who's going to teach you how to wax on and wax off. Mm-hmm. And I was in practice for eight years before I went out on my own. So I'm always astounded when I think about people like you who started out so early, just right. bam, what made you do that? Why were you not scared like I was? Like I said, when I was that age, when I was younger, I had no fear. Like, you know, yes, I look back and I'm like, wow, I did that. But yes, I had no fear whatsoever. And um, it just seemed like the right thing to do. And why wouldn't I be able to do it, right? So I did have mentors along the way and had asked for um, help when I needed it, attended a multitude of CLE courses, of course, uh, went to all types of trainings, uh, hosted lots of trainings, got very involved in the bar associations at the state level, as well as the local level, sat on the Florida Bar Board of Governors Young Lawyers Division early on. And, you know, I, I certainly got the education and training that I needed um, in terms of business and in the substantive area of family law uh, to be able to do so. I had a whole lot of energy back then. I was very feisty. And I, I bet you still are, Christina. I think I still have that. But you know, hey, now I'm a married mother, uh, almost 46. And um, I've calmed down a lot, let's just say that. <laughs> yeah, I, I can relate to that. You, you're still feisty, though. I can see that in you. You think so? Yo, yeah. Don't don't lose that. That's a good thing. I want you to be like that 90-year-old woman who's, you know, she might have a cane, but she is out on the dance floor, right? Oh, you want me to be my mother, right? You want me to be like, um, you know, don't, don't do anything for me. I'm not an invalid. I'm like, oh, mom, we're just trying to help you. She's like, I don't need any help. You know, so that's going to be me, too. Yeah, I think that's going to be you for sure. That's a good thing, though. That's very cool. I sounds like I might want to meet your mom. <laughs> yeah, very, very independent woman. So, you know, she did things in the 70s. I would probably be afraid to do now. You know, she had, uh, there were five of us. I'm the youngest of five. And, you know, she divorced my dad with, with five, you know, minor children. My oldest brother was uh, 17 at the time and I was a year old. <laughs> and five minor children and um, went out got three jobs, worked three jobs. I saw her work hard and, you know, she, she did very well and did very well by us. So, wow. That's an incredible role model (laughs) to have. Yeah. (laughs) It sounds like she didn't make herself a victim in circumstance. not, Not at all. I think that I inherit a lot of, you know, my fearlessness from her. Here we are in 2021 and this was in 1976 she's, she's doing that, you know, where, you know, being married and being dependent on a, on a man was, you know, still pretty much mm-hmm. the norm. Women were um, largely supported by men and he raised me the exact opposite, <laughs> you know, uh, never be dependent on a job or a man. You make your own way in this life. Oh, I love that. That's <laughs> awesome. How old is your mom now? She's 83 or will be 83 in two months. So in March. (laughs) Wow. I think we definitely do need to talk about me interviewing her. I love progressive women like that. And it's easy to think about being progressive today. Uh Although it's sometimes hard to know exactly what that looks like because we're in it now, but it's, it's easier to identify many years ago who Uh was progressive, like people like your mom, like who were those people? Uh And, um, I hope that I 
can be that person today when I, you know, I hope I can look back on my life and say, well, I did things that other women weren't doing. I was progressive. Right. I, I hope so too. You know, it's all about leaving a legacy and what, um, you know, young people, you know, boys and girls are seeing when they, when they see me. So, you know, I, I listen to some of the things that my six-year-old daughter says, and she's just like, mommy, I want to be a superstar like you. And I'm like, Oh, what? I'm not a superstar. So, but you know, in her eyes, she's like, "Mommy, you're famous." I'm like, "No, I'm not." <laughs> mommy is mommy. It's called a uh, branding. Mommy is marketing herself. <laughs> wow, but you know what? Those are in- interesting memories that she'll have because she's right. so little. You don't actually know which memories are really going to stick with her right. when she's older and looks back on that stuff. So right. I, I love that. I hope that's one that she definitely keeps. Right. I, I remember my um, my fondest memories of my mom. I just thought she knew everything. You know, she was like a, a Renaissance woman. You know, she knew she was an avid reader and she never really had to push us academically. But we were that way because of her. Um, she exposed us to books really young. You know, we're all in gifted education. I mean, she knew, you know, something about the French Revolution or when when apples were in, in bloom in, in uh, Japan. <laughs> when apples are in bloom in Japan and why would you want to know that but she read everything so she was able to assist us if we needed help and you know just really cultivated a mind of curiosity in our children so we went to museums we went to the ballet we went to opera um we were trained girls at least in in ballet uh, and things like that so she exposed us to a different type of life than you know what what our immediate environment was well, I hope she gets to listen to this and hear these wonderful things you're saying about her. If if you haven't told her, because I'm guilty of this. Sometimes we don't we don't say thank you to our our moms and family members for some of the good memories that we have. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know saying those things. I interviewed her recently, actually. Um, who is it? Benjamin Hardy has a list of interview questions that you uh, need to ask your elderly relatives before they pass on. And she was with us for the holidays. So um, I sat her down and I'm like, tell me about your childhood. Tell me about your parents. Tell me about, you know, their parents. Tell me everything. So that I have that at least now written history. You know, it's usually just an oral tradition that's passed on. The story gets changed, you know, but this will be something for my daughter and her children uh, as, as the generations go. So I'm in the process of compiling it all and giving it all to my siblings as well. I love that. I'm going to check that out. I I really do think that's important. I I actually tried to do that with my 95 year old grandmother recently. And a lot of stuff she simply couldn't remember, you know, Mm -hmm. like names and places. And it would have been really nice to talk to her when she was younger and when she could actually remember names and places and addresses and things like that. So that's great. I'm going to check that out. Thank you. So back to business. Uh oh. <laughs> so your first job, did do you feel like you got to learn a little bit more than maybe the average attorney does about actually how to run a business? No. Okay. You Absolutely didn't. not. No. I, I no. thought maybe you would have seen something more related to the administration. No. no. Um, I think once I got on my own, you know, I got involved, like I said, with the Florida Bar and I just availed myself of 
the law practice management section um, and all of the resources that were there. Um, I still work with a business coach as well. So even to this day, here I am almost 18 years in and, you know, 17 years in practice, I'm sorry, in, in business, but I you know, still work with a business coach. I need that accountability. I need someone who is, you know, uh, has a checks and balances system and that is making sure that, you know, we are covering ourselves and that we're, we're, we're limiting our liability. So that's interesting. You say that you were in the law firm management section, because isn't that basically how Arjun started his business? Do you remember? I don't know if the timing works, but do you remember him from then? Early on, no, but later on, yes, I do recall seeing that he headed up the program. They have a whole list of forms, a whole list of, you know, they also have staff that were under him that we deal with directly. But yeah, I, I think if a firm got in trouble, he was the one that went out and, and fixed the internal problem. I'd never had that uh, situation particularly, but yeah, Arjun, um, who is... One of my, I guess, the owner of the business coaching program that I use now, uh, he ran the Florida Bar Law Practice Management section. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I always kind of wonder what he would have been like because he's very eccentric for people who don't know him and kind of wonder what was he really like, you know, back then when he was troubleshooting these kinds of problems. Well, certainly he wasn't running the show then. I mean, he was working for the Florida Bar. So, you know, you didn't really see that um, aspect of his personality. I I appreciate it. I, I you know, want people to be who they are. <laughs> certainly I don't deal with him directly now either. I have my own uh, CEO and COO and C-suite team. I'm about to have a CO, CFO as well uh, to help with the financial controls of my business. But I am grateful that he started a company like that, that we could invest in and invest in ourselves, not only our business, but in ourselves uh, to be the type of person who would um, have a prosperous business. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that I've learned over the years, and, and you can tell me if you agree, is that even though you don't know how to run a business, you can learn that stuff, but you also do have to invest in yourself and your mindset because sometimes... It's you that's holding you back and it can be hard to, to accept that sometimes. So can you talk a little bit about that from your own experience? Yeah, I wish I um, had a private coaching program like I have now when I was younger, because, you know, like I said, back then I was fearless, right? So now I have all these reservations. I know, you know, a little bit more, I guess, you know, what they say is ignorance is bliss. Back then, you know, you didn't know a lot of the danger, so you discharged forward. Now, knowing um, the potential pitfalls and dangers that are out there, I'm a little bit more cautious. You know, I take yeah. more calculated risks as opposed to just going forward and doing it, which, you know, I wish I had more of that, that, know, that, that feistiness that I had back then, where I think I would cross the thresholds and goals that I've set for myself a little quicker. But we are, we have grown tremendously with an accountability partner or, or coach, as some people um, term it. I sort of look at it as a C-suite team. They're an extension of my firm. They are deeply involved and in the trenches right along with me um, as executives in my firm. So when you first started out your firm, you didn't really have experience with family law. Um, Other than the clinical that I did, not necessarily, but, you know, a lot of continuing legal education courses, you know, and trying some pro bono cases as well. Um, just to get my feet wet. But yeah, the family law kept coming. That is bold. 
That's another thing, you know, where I wanted my Mr. Miyagi, like, well, I don't know how to do that practice of law. Who's going to teach me how to do that? I think for me, it was some sort of like perfectionist syndrome. Mm -hmm. I admire you for just that feistiness, just going forward and, you know, not being afraid to fail or. Yeah, but, you know, wrong. There are lots of mentors along the way and some of the giants in family law that were back then, you know, I had certainly made sure that I asked questions and watched their trials as well. So So when did you start to realize that, you know, maybe I don't know how to run a business or maybe I could run a business better and start seeking out coaching or consulting? Probably about five years ago, five years ago, um, I had this, you know, annoying email that kept coming into my, my inbox that I would send to spam. <laughs> and, and I'm like, what the heck is this? Like, you know, who is this? And at that time I thought all coaching was like somebody trying to sell snake oil, you know, like everybody's trying to sell something, yeah. everybody's, you know, coaching because I'm like life coaching to me, you know, <laughs> like everybody's yeah. like, you know, they don't have any uh, specific certifications or psychology degree, but they want to be your counselor. So this is sort of what I looked at it as for business coaching. I'm like, okay, well, you know, I have uh, resources that I can check out for that. And after I had my daughter, she was about two years old in 2016. And I said, well, let me just see exactly what they're talking about. (laughs) I gave them a call, went to their discovery day. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> you can't sell me anything. You know, I'm the world's biggest cynic, right? So, um, but it wasn't until I saw the people that I knew locally in the Miami, Fort Lauderdale area. And I started talking to them and seeing their results. And I said, okay, let me give it a try. And, you know, it, it was the best decision I could have ever made in terms of investing in myself and my business. So what were some of the biggest changes that you made early on when you started working with them? Getting structure in place, getting policies and and procedures and hiring for key positions. Hiring was the big one. For years, I had been a, you know, pretty much not a true solo, but I at least had a legal assistant or, or two, legal assistant and a paralegal. But hiring people to replace myself or delegate to. <laughs> that was the the biggest improvement that I could do in my firm. Um, and of course, if there are more of us, more of us doing, then we're making more money. We're servicing more people. We're bringing more value to people um, in the South Florida legal community. So it's certainly been invaluable. Certainly um, the financial controls, getting a hold of that, learning how to read a financial statement and learning all of the different financial statements that are required you know, tracking, work in progress, you know, things like that. Those are are, are very important um, things that I wasn't doing. You know, it's just like, you know, hey, whatever came through the door, you know, people used to pride themselves, especially in bar associations um, on, you know, hey, I don't have to market, you know, everything's word of mouth for me, this, that, and the other. And yeah, you know what, you are doing a form of marketing um, just by getting out there and, and people knowing who you are and, and liking you and trusting you. Um, but it's, doesn't hurt to give yourself a little boost. Maybe about 30% of my business is, is paid marketing as well. Well, a lot of attorneys have that attitude, regardless of how long they've been in business, that Mm -hmm. all I have to do is just be a good attorney and Mm -hmm. my practice will thrive. And we know that's not true because there are plenty of good attorneys that don't have a thriving practice. And there's, there are some bad attorneys that are, have a thriving practice and you wonder why, you know, how are these people going, going to this person? Right. I mean, we all know, um, 
great lawyers, very, you know, um, talented lawyers that are broke. <laughs> we know them all. And um, it's not a matter of skill um, or it shouldn't be just skill, but, you know, you need to have a certain level of business acumen as well. And I think something I learned through the coaching is that you don't have to, as a lawyer who's taken on the responsibility of having a business, you don't have to be the person that's always sitting at the desk doing all of the work. Right. You, know, you can have your own vision for your firm. Mm-hmm. And that could include you practicing law or not. Right. So I want to ask you, what was your vision and how has that changed maybe over the past five years? Um, you know what? Um, I would say. Prior to five years ago, I thought I'd always be practicing law, you know, like until I'm 70, at least. I always wanted to be active, you know, until I couldn't practice anymore. But now, you know, certainly it's changed, you know. Um, you know, like I said, I'm a wife, I'm a mom, and, you know, I would like to concentrate a little bit more on some of the, the things that matter personally to me. Um, my business certainly matters. Uh, and it creates a great lifestyle for the people that work here. Um, and we're helping certainly the people that that we do business for. But if we have people in place to help with the legal production and then the requisite staff in place as well, then there's really no need for me to be there other than the owner. You know, I have created an opportunity that has a residual effect, not only to, you know, our team, but to the community at large. I love that. So if someone had told you that when you first started your firm, would what would you have thought? Get out of here. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> no, I need to be right there micromanaging everything. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? You're you're feisty. You're a woman in control. And I I've struggled with that too, is that sometimes that feeling like, well, no one's gonna do it the way that I would do it. Mm-hmm. But you definitely have to let go of that at some point. And, and and there are people that they may not do it exactly the way you do it, but right. they will still do it well and we'll do it well and, and be effective. So tell me how have you managed um how how have your associates done in your absence? Well, (laughs) I will definitely say hiring and firing has been probably my Achilles. I I find that to be something that I still find challenging. And I don't know. I I feel like there has to be some kind of system to hire and find people that are going to be the best fit for you. But at the same time, you really never know until they start. Absolutely. Um, so, but to answer your question, we've had people that we thought were going to be great and it ended up just being a train wreck situation. And then we've had other people where we were like, I don't know, you know, how many times can we interview them? Let's just hire them and it's sink or swim. And they've worked out. Uh, our John has always said something too in the trainings is that sometimes you get an employee who works out really wonderfully for a long period of time and then and then at some point they don't anymore. Mm-hmm. And people, people are, you know, I give people the right to make their own decisions. I mean, we, I don't expect, and I'm not as naive to think that people are going to stay with me forever. So, but before the time being, I want you to work. I want you to be productive. If you're, you know, hopefully we have a great enough relationship where I can help you and assist you into transition into your next position. But you know, if they want to leave, you know, we always, we're always interviewing (laughs) So we always have, you know, someone that we're thinking about that can uh, come in 
and replace you. So, and not to say that, you know, hey, you're replaceable. You know, we want those people that are critical and and um, vital to the organization, but the organization will go on. And yes, we've we've had other associates. We've had other legal assistants and paralegals and <laughs> case managers. And I mean, my firm has been in existence now for 17 years. So, wow, that's really impressive. You, I hope that you pat yourself on the back occasionally for that. Yeah, I, I guess I, I, I can. I'm, I'm proud of that. I just wish I had uh, discovered business coaching or, or invested in, in the business a little bit sooner. You know, so I was, it was a long time <laughs> prior to five years ago of, of just doing it the way everyone else did. And pretty much um, my business was stagnant. I mean, we did, we did okay, but you know, it was pretty much the same because that was the expectation and it's an overwhelming expectation amongst, amongst lawyers that are out there, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I think Arjun's done a good job of describing that experience of just like being a hamster on a wheel where mm-hmm. you're trying to do everything. You're trying to practice law and you're trying mm-hmm. to market and do sales and manage the, the staff, even if you just have a small staff and it, it's really just too much for one person and you're not going to be good at all of it. No, you're not. <laughs> you're not. Um, so I would say that's one of the things that I've struggled with in the past. I'm getting better at it is just acknowledging that you you do want someone who's better at certain things than you are. And that's who you hire. Um, because I think I've in the past have had that fear that, oh, well, if I hire someone who's too much better than me, you know, what does that say about me? Uh, so well, you, you always hire up, right? Um, as Henry Ford actually said, you know, I can find someone who, who can, who knows that information. I don't need to know it, you know? Um, but you know, he's, he's gone down in history as one of the great innovators and greatest businessmen of all time. So yeah, we have to take on that philosophy. Um, it is a very scary thing, especially if the person has more experience or as good as, or better than you are. If they are willing to work and they don't have any uh, nefarious ideas of, of, you know, stealing your clients and, and starting their own shop, then, you know, why not? I think that that makes you even better. So what would be your plan to be able to uh, have, what does Arjun call it, a practice rather than a business? Forget how he grades them, you know, where the one where you don't really have to be there. $500,000 is a business. Like you don't have a business until you reach 500,000. So we've reached that mark already and uh, we're approaching seven figure mark. And hopefully in 2022, we'll be somewhere around 2 million. So awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> so tell me, how did you also branch off your business into doing personal injury work? When did that happen? Uh, well, actually, that has always been there. Um, just, you know, very minimally, I would say um, it, it has grown from maybe about 10% of our practice to about 20% of our practice now. But in terms of the rewards, you know, once a case settles, the income, I guess, benefit to the firm uh, is almost equal to what we bring in in family law. So it's a, it's a nice boost. So that's one of the other things that uh, private coaching has taught me is to really percentageize and see the benefit of my work in progress. So when I was contemplating, hey, you know, I don't have that many um, cases and most of them settle pre-suit anyway, pre-litigation. I'm I'm thinking about getting rid of it. Okay, let's see exactly what they are. 
when do you expect that bill to settle and for how much? And then what is your cut? And when we looked at what the firm would bring in, I was astounded. I just, you know, I did not think of looking at it in that way. So it um, certainly confirmed with me that this is what I, it's a, it's a necessary portion or component of my business. That's nice. That's when you realize that actually looking at data and metrics rather than just emotion and intuition. It can be beneficial. Although I do think that there's something to be said about intuition and, you know, sort of your gut instinct. Um, What do you think? When it comes to people? Yes. Hiring and, um, you know, people's motivations uh, here, making sure that you have A employees, A and B employees and nothing less, (laughs) you know, the C, D and F employees you get rid of. Uh, just like you do with your CDNF clients, you get rid of. But for my business, I think for me, the empirical data and the metrics have really opened my eyes to making those quantum leaps, right? And propelling my business forward. So any plans to add any other practice areas? Is that something oh, you thought about? absolutely not. If I was going to get rid of the personal injury and just do exclusively family, I mean, you know, certainly niching down is is um, the most profitable thing for me. Um, you're not going to be the master of everything um, or be effective at everything. So, you know, I'm keeping those two for the time being. Certainly as uh, our firm grows, I'll hire, you know, associates to handle the personal injury as well. So what is your philosophy on, on divorces? Not, that's a pretty broad question. What is your philosophy on how you handle, from a litigation perspective, your divorce cases? Are you uh, mediation-minded? You know, I think we're always uh, settlement-minded. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not afraid to try a case. And I, I think we're always preparing for trial. But, you know, before we go to mediation, you know, we have our pre-mediation statement. We have all of our tables drafted, uh, our child support guidelines, the property division tables, and a marital settlement agreement. <laughs> and I send over that marital settlement agreement to opposing counsel before the mediation occurs. So at least they see where our mindset is. Some, most times, I would say maybe 75 or 80% of the time, we will get a counterproposal back and we can see where they are. And it makes the, the mediation a lot easier, you know, and we get through it a lot quicker. So, you know, there may be one or two issues that we can't resolve. And those are the only two issues that have to be tried, but it cuts down a lot of, of time or they're just totally, you know, uh, um, uh, offended. I will put out there and like <laughs> Everything's going to impasse at this mediation. Let's let's get it done, get it out of the way, so the court knows that we at least made a good faith settlement. And Sam, let's try this case. All right, hey, the gloves come off. So, um, you know, it's it's time to try the case. Yeah, so, I, you know, I love it. I I I think that's where my feistiness comes in, and you know, in a professional sense, certainly. But yeah, I I love the adversarial nature. I I, I tell people often that you know to be a family lawyer, to be a good one, in a twisted sort of sense, you, you gotta love drama. You know, so I, yeah. Yeah, you do. I mean, I think that's, I think that's what happened to me where I started to really um, back out of the practice is I think I got a little tired of all the drama. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm very, I can have tunnel vision. I'm very uh, goal focused. You know, the result is the the thing that I'm really focused on, not necessarily the process. Mm-hmm. So I feel like when there's all these players that are interfering with getting to that end result. 
Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of times it's the attorneys, um, you know, um, just, you know, not giving you discovery you need or, or just having an unreasonable settlement position. Um, You do have to be a little bit of a bulldozer and be ready to just say, okay, well, we're, you know, we're going full steam ahead. Uh, Sounds like you don't have any problem doing that. Yeah. I mean, that's what the client retains you for. Yeah. The result. And, you know, resolution is always the, the goal, but sometimes that can't be achieved. So, I mean, I, I, I'm certainly not the lawyer that wants a case to drag on forever. And I want the client to be able to afford to continue on in their matter or to resolve their matter uh, expeditiously. So if they can't do that, then, you know, we're going to have to get off the case eventually if, if they can't continue to pay. So it's in my best interest as well to resolve it as quickly as possible if it can be resolved. You know, that's something else that I see a lot still with so many attorneys is um, it's amazing how many attorneys have this attitude of, well, I have this client, but they're not paying me and they can't afford me. And well, I guess I'm just kind of stuck. I mean, what am I going to do? Dump them. And my answer is yes, yes, you are, Um, which can sound harsh. No, well, I don't think so. I mean, if the expectations are managed early on, especially, you know, in the consultation and in the retainer agreement and the external policies that go out, you know, so they know this is a two-way street. So the consultation is not only for them to determine whether they want to hire our firm, it's for us to see if they're a viable, you know, potential new client. And the contract is very specific in, in stating that if you don't pay, we will, after two weeks, give you a nice warning, maybe a little more stern warning, and then a little more matter of fact. And then at that point, it's time to withdraw and get off your case. And, you know, more likely than not, they'll be sent to collections. So that alone, I, I think, is incentive enough for people to honor their contracts. They want continuity in their cases. Um, I think judges look at parties. They probably shouldn't, but they do <laughs> look at parties a little different if they had more than one lawyer on a case um, and they keep switching up lawyers. So, and then other lawyers, I know I'm a little skeptical and I look at people with a side eye if they've had a, a few lawyers and they're coming to my office and I'm just like, okay, well, you didn't pay your last two lawyers and what's going on here? So yeah. I, I think if you just set that expectation, it's managed well early on, then you won't have a problem. But yeah, you certainly do. You get off. You you get off and you withdraw. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you you say that because you must have encountered some attorneys who will have that attitude like, well, you know, what am I going to do? Dump them like like they're doing something wrong or something bad. And that's really a, that's where the mindset stuff comes in. I mean, you know, you often have, and I don't know about um, any opposing counsel or, or outside counsel, but I've had, I think early on that feeling where I really liked the person and I wanted to, you know, resolve this case for them. But, you know, at that point it, it became something for legal aid and not for my private law practice. Well, you have to tell us, because I have heard this story, but people have to know, about the time that you closed your firm and then restarted Uh, it. (laughs) Because that's another thing that astounds me. Hey, it was only for three months because I was on maternity leave. So yeah, this was before um, I made the investment and got a private business coach. So certainly I was not hiring associates or, you know, of counsel to take over my cases, but I pretty much filed my notices of unavailability for, for 12 weeks 
And um, my office was in Miami-Dade County. I had the movers come about two weeks before my due date, not knowing that I would deliver three days later. So thank God it was that day. <laughs> I'm, you know, scurrying around the office, trying to help them with boxes. They're like, no, you just sit down. Just stay <laughs> like, out here. <laughs> and um, Monday, went into labor. My office was closed. Everything was in storage. Uh Within 10 weeks or two weeks of my 12 weeks expiring, I was back out, pounding the pavement, looking for office space. Started back 12 weeks later in, in Broward County, the county to the north where I now live. The rest is history. All my clients stayed with me. The judges and everybody was respectful of it. And I went back and nothing changed. I can't say anything other than everything was paved with... with um a way, all right, a way to do. I just had to step into it, you know, the, mm. the, the way became illuminated as I took further, uh, more steps, as they say, all right? So that was something that was very scary for me at the time. But looking back, it was probably the best business decision because it made me more accessible to more people that I could help. Well, I know a lot of people would have been like, I can't close my business. You know, what if everything dries up? What if I can't start it again? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? Yeah, and yeah, but the baby was coming. So <laughs> what are you going to do? I was just like, okay, <laughs> the baby's coming. We'll, we'll, we'll cross that bridge and we'll come to it. So the baby. Yeah. Look, can we talk about her a little bit? Sure. <laughs> I, I know your face lights up when we talk about her and. I think, I think you told me one time, you know, something to the effect of that that's really been the, the most important job to you is being a mom. Yeah. You know, my priority changed, you know, I got married late. I got married at 37 and had a kid at 39. So I just didn't realize how selfish <laughs> I was and just, you know, really uh, focused on me. All right. So growing a practice, I, I wasn't responsible to anyone else after getting married. And of course, having my baby changed my focus and it, it really uh, changed how I look at my cases as well. I see what these, these clients are fighting for really. I mean, it's not just about me being a good lawyer and advocating for them, but it, it took on new meaning for me. So that's why when she was two, um, I decided to really invest in myself and in, in my business and make sure that I leave a good legacy for her. Just remembering what my mom said about, you know, you not being dependent on a job or a man, right? So, you know, whether she wants to start her own business or, you know, do whatever, travel around the world, she can do so. But, you know, at the same time, we're creating a great lifestyle for, for the people that work for us as well, that are members of our team. And the more people uh, that are here, the the more successful we are and everybody benefits. As they say, a rising tide raises all boats. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I love that. That is so true. And and um, something else I've heard is, is not coming from a place of competition. You know, there's enough success to go around, right? We don't have to do it at someone's expense. All the time, actually. Like, you know, I don't, I don't compare myself to anyone. And, you know, even before I started uh, investing in my business and, and myself, my personal and, and business coaching, I, I never did. I just felt like I was very unique. I had something different to offer. And I feel that there's abundance all around us. So do you find yourself saying things to your daughter that your mom said to you? I know she's still really little, but do you? 
she's still little, little, but you know, they say the, what is that? The age of seven, what is it? The age of integrity or the age of, of knowledge is seven when they come into understanding. Yes. The age of understanding is, is seven years old. So she's six and a half now, not quite six and a half. Next, next month she'll be six and a half. And she is well advanced. <laughs> She she understands so much more than we thought she should at this age. Yeah. <laughs> her deductive reasoning is off the charts. So, you know, yes, I sort of talk to her plainly. I have uh, several girlfriends that tell me, why are you talking to her like she's an adult? I'm like, because she's going to be, you know, this is what I'm training. I'm raising a very successful and um, independent adult. So that's sort of how I see her. I see her six-year-old self as a 25-year-old. And that's what I'm I'm sort of training for her to to you know be off on her own. When she is my age, I'm gonna be in my 80s. So she's gonna to have to be able to, you know, run it. <laughs> she's gonna be able to not, not necessarily in my law office, but you know, run her life and and be the boss of her life. And that's so amazing. I love that. Oh, I love that. But so many people try to make their kids, you know, them. They try to just turn them into them you know, little versions of them. And I always, uh, that always bothers me a little because I feel like when we're born, all of us, we're our own little person, even from the first day. Yeah, she she certainly is. She certainly is. You know, I was a very quiet, reserved kid, not shy, but, you know, just to myself and didn't require a whole lot of people around me. (laughs) I'm still the same way, very independent. And hey, I can take care of myself and I'm good. You know, I don't need a whole lot of people. Like quarantine has actually been great for me. (laughs) I would love to meet your daughter sometime. I'll have to come visit you in Florida. (laughs) Yeah, you certainly need to come visit and we'll go to the beach. So yeah, (laughs) I don't know about you, but that's my daughter's favorite place. She wants to go to the Ritz-Carlton on Fort Lauderdale Beach and enjoy smoothies on the sand. That's her her big thing. Wow. We can do that. <laughs> I would love to do that. I she's yeah. uh yeah, she we could be very good friends. I like her standards already. <laughs> I think that mommy exposed her to a lot of things that mommy wasn't exposed to, and that that's her standard. So her standard is what her standard is. <laughs> so what if she said, Mommy, I want to be a lawyer like you and I'm gonna take over the firm? Absolutely. Absolutely, <laughs> right? Sure into it. I'm certainly not going to push her into it. I have a, a lot of colleagues, good colleagues that um, I feel were forced by their parents because that's what their parents did. Always curious when I see someone who went into the family business or became a lawyer like their mom or dad or a teacher or whatever it is. I always wonder myself, did they really want to do that or were they just groomed to do that? Right. They yeah. actually might not even be aware of it themselves. I, well, I think that's what I've gotten through coaching is better self-awareness. Right. I, I am very cognizant of, you know, what I say to her and I'm not pushing her in one way or the other. I mean, certainly since the pandemic, she has come to the office a lot with mommy. Um, She knows the entire staff and she said it on occasion, but you know, she's only six. So I'm not, I'm not pushing one way or the other. So you mentioned earlier that there were some good things that came out of this um, quarantine experience. Can you talk about that a little more? What were some of your blessings? Well, you know, business certainly picked up. We got, I mean, people become more and more, I guess, acutely aware of the problems in their marriage when they're 
stuck together and they're, you know, not going to the office per se, as opposed to, you know, working from home, uh, being surrounded by them more often. And not to say that we're profiting off the pain of others, but, you know, I, I like to look at it as we are helping people transition to their best selves, right? So we've had more of an opportunity to do that in 2020 and certainly in the last three weeks of, of this year as well. It's certainly been a blessing in terms of business, in terms of, you know, just realizing, you know, what I want in life, what's important, and spending more time with my family is is certainly a blessing. Things I wasn't doing before. <laughs> Are there any permanent changes that you'll make, having seen how some things can work out, maybe working from home or other business practices? Are there things that you've done because of the pandemic that you'll continue to do? I may go totally virtual. Um, I mean, right now we're in a commercial lease. So I think we've always had the capability of being remote. Uh, I know that I would work even pre-pandemic remotely, you know, on several days throughout the week, even though the office was, or the staff was in the in the office. But now with everyone at home, uh, I think that maybe I give them the option to do so, or we'll just go totally remote from now on after the lease is up. But they certainly have the option to come into the office when they need something or supplies or whatnot. But no, I don't think there's anything that we do differently. I don't think we've changed much other than everybody's not around each other. I mean, certainly maybe some bonding experience because people tend to get isolated in their their own homes. Uh, we certainly don't want people to be disconnected uh, from one another. We want to be a team at all times. So we've done some office trivia every Wednesday. Every Wednesday morning at 9.02 is the trivia time. So I'm the reigning champion. I know the most about my team and they don't know anything about each other. So... <laughs> So everybody's trying to beat me. So, you know, it's just a get to know you and, you know, a lot of little indiscriminate personal facts are disclosed and we have fun doing it. So, you know, more bonding, more team building. I think that's one of the other blessings of COVID that because we're not in the office and we're not, you know, in each other's faces interacting all the time that we have to find ways to, to be connected. I like that. That sounds fun. I have yeah. to do that. I was going to ask, you know, how do you keep that um, sense of, uh, you know, community with your staff? But that's that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. I think a lot more people are doing that, probably more so than they did before. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think the trap you kind of fall into is that just because you're together all the time, and this is true of other relationships, doesn't mean it's always quality time that you're spending together. Right. You know, that's always a fear when you run a business is that they may be good at what they do, but they may be horrible people. And, you know, you may lose your other staff, not necessarily them, but, you know, getting rid of them would probably be a blessing because you'll at least have a team um, that's there. Uh, one of my C-suite coaches told me that, you know, a really good team will chew up and spit out a bad member. So, you know, it's mm. almost like you don't have to do the firing. They they fire themselves. So um, I had that recently, I would say in the past uh, two months <laughs> that happened with a member. And when it was revealed to me, I mean, everybody in the office knew it before I did. So, so what did they come to you and say, this person isn't working out? No, they didn't do that necessarily. I noticed, started noticing something. And when I, you know, 
asked for confirmation from some people, that's when it got disclosed and I went to another person. And then, you know, so they certainly weren't trying to throw them under the bus. They waited until it was revealed to me or that I noticed it. And then they gave me a little bit of confirmation and then, you know, they were waiting until I could do something about it. So yeah, um, it's, it's a, it is a um, a really interesting, you know, way that it happened. I, I just thought that someone would come to me beforehand, but they didn't. They were very professional about it. They certainly didn't talk behind the person's back. There was no gossip in the office. It was me just asking for confirmation. Well, that says a lot about your relationship with your staff. Mm-hmm. I've experienced it in the past where the staff members are sometimes reluctant to squeal on each other. So even if you ask them, they'll just paint it in the best possible light that they po- they can. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's kind of interesting. It's like, I guess because maybe because they see themselves as equals and no matter how much we try to have team building exercises and, and build a, a relationship with our staff, we're never equals and they'll never see us that way. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that issue sometimes was an impediment for us to get people to tell us when, when there was actually someone very toxic in our office mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that person had to get, her toxicity had to get to such an astounding level where she really was making everybody in the office quite miserable that they each started coming to me in confidence one by one mm-hmm. expressing that. And, so, um, and that's how you found out about it. Yeah. I mean, oh, I, okay. I was having problems with the person, but I didn't know if other people were mm-hmm. and, um, you know, without getting into the long tortured history, it, it became apparent that it wasn't just me and a toxic person really can poison the whole well. Oh yeah, absolutely. They can. Sometimes it's just no longer a good fit because you can tell when something's different, you know, mm-hmm. this person's not as engaged as they used to be. The, their mm-hmm. work's not as good. You know, something's just different. Sometimes you just feel that. Mm-hmm. And I've said to people before, look, if you don't want to be here, if this is just not your jam anymore, or you feel like this office isn't a good fit, or you don't want to be in law anymore, it's really okay. No one's going to be offended. Mm-hmm. You know, it's okay. People That's aren't going to stay here forever. They have other desires, other other goals. I'm fine with it. But just acknowledge that, you know, do all of us a favor and acknowledge that. Don't hang around just to get your paycheck. Right. So. Right. That's that's a big problem is that some people just want a paycheck and that's it. And you know what? At least do a great job <laughs> for the paycheck. You know, yeah, earn a it. Job, be, be personable and, you know, don't be someone who could care less one way or the other. I want you to be passionate about the work that you do and contribute to the success of the firm. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you on that. So um, I wanted to ask you, what is on your bucket list? Mostly it's it's destinations, travel experiences. Um, certainly I want to travel to the French Riviera and to Israel. So those are the only two places that, you know, I, I have to go to before I die. I don't know. What's on your bucket list? <laughs> I would agree. A lot of travel. I I really want to see the world. And 
I didn't even go to Europe until I was 40. It, it's always been important to me to travel and see the world. Mm-hmm. And then as many of us do, you know, life gets in the way and we're always focused on these goals that we have to do. And, but we don't actually stop to smell the roses. Right. And I realized at 40, you know, I've been saying for years, it's so important to me to travel, but why aren't I doing it? What am I waiting for? Right. So I started traveling more and I went to Europe a bunch of times and there's still so much more to see. I mean, the world is so big. Yeah. I mean, Europe is great. The only place that I want to go to is the South of France (laughs) there, but Israel and maybe Shanghai. I hear it's a wonderful city. So I have just a couple questions, sort of like a Proust questionnaire that I want to ask you. One, um, what is your idea of perfect happiness? Perfect happiness. Um, I'm not really sure if I believe in perfection. You know, I think we're always in a state of improvement and striving for excellence. But um, happiness is pretty much being comfortable with who you are. Uh, not comparing yourself to anyone or anything else, setting goals that are, I wouldn't say attainable, but that are achievable with with reasonable effort and taking steps to accomplish them. Um, so I think if you're moving forward, uh, you have little successes along the way and you're comfortable with being you, however different that is, that's that's happiness in my book. So you're writing Life's Instruction Manual. What is rule number one? Mm, Be true to yourself. Yeah, be true to yourself. Sounds simple. It's hard to do sometimes, though. It takes some some learning to do that. Okay. Do you think so? Um. No, not for me. I mean, I, I am a, like I said, I, I've been saying this throughout the, the, the talk today is that, you know, I'm a very independent person. So not to say I don't care what other people think, but. You don't. <laughs> I mean, it sounds very, you know, callous. I understand how it sounds, but I've, I've never been a people pleaser. So if you are true to who you are, then you have a higher probability of success. Most people are trying to be something they're not. Uh, they're trying to impress others or uh, they're competing with others. Yeah. yeah and it I doesn't sound callous at all. I mean, it sounds healthy. Yeah. I, I take all of that out of the equation. And I've always been that way, even as a little girl. So um, just a different type of kid. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Keep going. Keep being you. <laughs> make your own rules. Especially make your own rules. I think a lot of my early adulthood was trying to conform or fit into society. Um, and now I sort of look at things as, you know, there are no rules, there are no norms um, that you just have to, you know, be who you are. And, um, you know, I thought I had to be married, have a kid, <laughs> um, you know, all of those things like young, like if you're not married by 30, then, you know, something's wrong with you or, you know, it's just not the tradition. So, you know, yeah, I was very independent. I, you know, left relationships quickly (laughs) because it didn't suit me. So, 
hey, when are you going to settle down? Like, you know, you hear that from your mom, you hear it from your aunt, you know, when are you going to find a nice boy and start a family? What's wrong with you? Or something like you've heard that all the time. So I think, you know, that desire to sort of conform and, and fit that mold, you don't have to worry about that, that, you know, it'll come when it's going to come. And if it doesn't come, that's great too. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I agree with that. Oh, and one more thing I would tell her is that that 20 year old Christina, I would say no matter what comes, come what may, you've got what it takes to, you know, breeze right through it. Yeah, so, you're going to figure it out. Right. You always have, you always will. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Okay. These are great. I love these. I should put like a little book together of all the answers that I've gotten from people. What would you tell someone who's starting their own business? And it could be a law firm or not. What would, what would be like the one thing you'd really want to emphasize for them for their future success? Get all the training that you can get a great mentor. Um, I would hire not only a business coach, but a success coach. Success coach, it, you know, just focuses on you as the individual and your mind and your ability to recognize any blind spots that you may have as a business owner, but certainly, you know, track everything and make sure that you are hiring up, right? Hiring people that are better than yourself. Excellent advice. And it's, <laughs> that might sound basic, but a lot of people aren't aware of that. So thank you. All right. Well, thank you for your time and sharing your story with me. I really appreciate it. I thought oh, thank it was you for having me again. <laughs> yes, I know, right? We we sort of um well for people who don't know, we did this one time and it um we had a technology technology snafu. <laughs> so here we are again. But I thought this one was even better. Yeah, I think so too. So tell people how they can find you. What's the best way for them to reach out to you if they're interested in your services? Absolutely. Uh, my firm is McKinnon Legal. That's M-C-K-I-N-N-O-N uh, Legal, L-E-G-A-L. And we're at McKinnon-Legal.com. And I will have a link to that in the show notes for anybody who wants to access that. Thank you again. All right. Thank you, Christina. Have a wonderful weekend. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call, the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.